Before we get to Isaiah, I want to talk about a very familiar verse to you. It's a phrase in which Jesus famously gives kind of an outburst of emotion. He has a very passionate agony over his beloved people. And it's, a, it's an outburst that's filled with despair and yet hope. It's filled with possibility yet impossibility and love but judgment. And you can probably guess what he's saying. Jesus said, O Jerusalem, Jerusalem, the city that kills the prophets and stones those who are sent to it. How often would I have gathered your children together as a hen gathers her brood under her wings and you were not willing. And we see that in Matthew twenty three thirty seven. But this lament, this bemoaning, and I've, I've heard this spoken on often. It wasn't just a passing thought. Jesus wasn't just walking down the street and just stopped for a minute and said, Oh, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, and then kept walking. This was the climactic conclusion to a denouncing sermon where he really puts down the false spiritual leadership of Israel who had led her away from the genuine worship of God. And so I want to set up the context of this for you so you can understand the, the, the scathing anger and yet deep, deep sadness that Jesus expresses here. In Matthew 23, Jesus had entered into Jerusalem and he's just a day or two from being arrested and crucified. It's right before his arrest. Crowds have gathered to hear him speak and he tells them, he he says, you know, the scribes and the Pharisees, they hold the office that Moses held as leader of Israel. So do whatever they tell you to do, but don't follow their example. And he says, for they preach, but they do not practice. In other words, they were putting legalistic rules on the people that were burdensome, they were impossible. And then to make it worse, they exploited the people by showing off their own so-called deeds of righteousness. They would dress the part. They loved the places of honor at feasts. They loved being called rabbi as people passed them in the streets. And so it was a very oppressive time. And then Jesus pronounces seven woes, seven verdicts of coming judgment six times. He says, woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites. And one time, just for clarity, he says, woe to you, blind guides. And he charges them with this massive list of crimes against God and against God's people. He says that they shut the kingdom of heaven in people's faces. He says that the rare convert to Judaism that they make is ruined. And he says, quote, made twice as much a child of hell as yourselves. He says that they care more about the gold in the temple than the worship in the temple. He called them out on the fact that they carefully tithed even the tiny plants grown in their herb gardens at home, the mint and the dill and the cumin, which was way farther than the law prescribed, but that's still fine. But they did this while ignoring what Jesus called the weightier matters of the law, justice and mercy and faithfulness. He famously says that they've strained out a gnat. And this is speaking of the the practice of taking a cloth and pouring your water through it to purify the water. He says, you've strained out a gnat, but you've swallowed a filthy camel. That inwardly, they're just disgusting. To keep the appearance of being pure and clean, they would carefully wash their dishes before and after using them. But he says, that doesn't matter because your thoughts are filthy. You're, You're filthy on the inside. He calls them whitewashed tombs. But then he gets closer to home and he reveals that they are murderers at heart who hate the messengers of God. 
He says, Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you build the tombs of the prophets and decorate the monuments of the righteous, saying, If we had lived in the days of our fathers, we would not have taken part with them in shedding the blood of the prophets. Thus you witness against yourselves that you are sons of those who murdered the prophets. And in the Gospel of Luke, the parallel passage, Jesus says that you commend them, you agree with them in what they did. Let me just give you a summary history of the murdered prophets. We find a summary history in in 1 Kings 19, kind of an example. Elijah told the Lord in the days of wicked King Ahab and his Canaanite wife Jezebel, this is what he said. He said, For I have been very jealous for the Lord, the God of hosts, for the people of Israel have forsaken your covenant, thrown down your altars, and killed your prophets with the sword. And I, even I only, am left, and they seek my life to take it away. And Jesus says, you've been killing prophets going all the way back from Abel all the way to Zechariah, which is, by the way, the entire chronological history of the Old Testament. He said that that the, the good men of God have been being killed by the bad men of the world. But here's the irony. This was the practice in Israel for hundreds and hundreds of years, that those in power who had the ability and the means to kill a prophet of God, for example, Zechariah, killed right there in the temple. And so they would murder them. And you know what they would do? They would say, publicly what a wonderful incredible prophet of God what a great ministry he had let's build a beautiful tomb to his memory just like a president for example if he was to have somebody illegally murdered and then publicly in a press conference say what a wonderful servant to our people this man was it was a horrible hypocritical practice and Jesus tells the scribes and Pharisees that they agree with this and then he tells them this, and this is shocking. You can, you can almost picture him just getting up in their face and saying, fill up then the measure of your fathers. And what he's saying is, finish the job. Finish what they started. You're already plotting to murder me. Get it done. Complete your family tradition. And then he pronounces their sentence. You serpents, you brood of vipers, How are you to escape being sentenced to hell? And that's the context when Jesus then says, O Jerusalem, Jerusalem, the city that kills the prophets and stones those who are sent to it, how often would I have gathered your children together as a hen gathers her brood under her wings and you were not willing. See, your house is left to you desolate. So why is it that Jesus is so intense about Jerusalem? Why is he so worked up about this, which symbolizes the seat of God's presence on earth? Well, Jerusalem is supposed to be the very place that's a beacon, that's a light, that's hope, that's grace to the world. It's supposed to be a magnet to attract people to the God of heaven. But instead, it became characterized by corruption and religious rebellion and deception by God's people and deception of God's people. Jerusalem first appears in the Bible on the site in which Abraham nearly sacrifices Isaac, but God provides a substitute that is called Mount Moriah, and it is the site that traditionally we believe the temple was built on. In that same time period, Abraham meets a mysterious kingly priest named Melchizedek, king of Salem, what would become the city of Jerusalem. 
Nearly a thousand years later, King David would attack and capture Jerusalem and make it the capital of his kingdom. And now we really see Jerusalem being established as the capital of the Bible. It's representative of the place where God meets his people on earth. That is the center stage. And of course, Jerusalem was the center, the focal point of the ministry of Jesus. It was the place of his arrest, his trial, his crucifixion, his resurrection, his ascension. All of the major issues with Jesus take place in Jerusalem. Now, if you don't think that Jerusalem is the spiritual battleground of the ages, consider two facts. Fact number one, Jerusalem never has been on a major trade route. In other words, throughout the history of the world, when cities are conquered, very often it's because a, a country wants them to control them because it's, it's economically advantageous. So that's the first fact. It's not on a major trade route. There's no reason to take Jerusalem. It's actually really hard to get to. It's out of the way. It's on top of a bunch of rocky crags, and it's very inconvenient. That's the first fact. But the second fact Jerusalem has been destroyed twice, besieged 23 times, attacked 52 times, captured and recaptured 44 times, more than any city on earth. If you don't think that it's a spiritual battleground, history says otherwise. And according to Zechariah 14, Jerusalem will be the point of return of Jesus Christ. Jerusalem is mentioned by name 810 times in the Bible. The first time it's mentioned by name is in Joshua chapter 10. The last time in Revelation 21. That's essentially the whole history of the Bible. It has countless alternative names. Zion for one of the mountains of Jerusalem and symbolizes her joy and her strength. The city of David, the city of the great king. Ariel, this beautiful, more feminine name in Isaiah 29. According to the Jewish Midrash, which is commentaries on the Old Testament, the Old Testament gives about 70 different names for Jerusalem. I mean, when I first moved to Bakersfield, I I learned a couple of names for Bakersfield. Baco, Dust Bowl, there's a couple of other things that I heard. I don't think Bakersfield has 70 names. But Jerusalem has 70 names going back thousands of years. So if you want to find out what's important in the redemptive plan of God, follow Jerusalem. Today, Jerusalem is split among the Jews, the Muslims, and there is a, a, what they call Christian quarter, which means Catholics, Greek, and Russian Orthodox, and then the Armenian quarter as well. And so now it's split up. It's considered the most hotly contested piece of real estate on planet Earth. Now, that being said, last week we saw that Psalm 122 commands us to pray for the peace of Jerusalem. May they be secure who love you. Well, it appears that the Jews, the Muslims, the pseudo-Christians, and the Armenians all love Jerusalem. So who gets it? Who, to whom does Jerusalem belong? How are we to pray for the peace of Jerusalem? Well, I want to pause that question just for a moment so we can kind of set our stage and get our bearings a little bit. For the last several weeks, we've been talking about really elevating our prayer life by looking ahead and looking beyond just our own present day and our own concerns and material needs. And we've seen that in the model prayer that Jesus gives to his disciples. Right off the bat, he says that we are to pray, your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. That's a, that's a kingdom prayer. And that if we'll focus more of our prayer life on the coming kingdom, I, I would assert that this does wonderful things for our souls. It, it buoys our souls. It gets us in line with God's redemptive program And it takes a little focus off of ourselves as the center of our own universe. And so it's very good for us. 
And so beginning in Isaiah 56, we've started examining how to pray kingdom prayers. And you have to know what the kingdom is about before you can pray kingdom prayers. It's sad to me that in American evangelicalism, generally speaking, our eschatology consists of Jesus is coming back. And that's it. And in fact, there's been some, in the last 50 years, wonderful popular songs about the coming of Jesus. And they just make me sad because the music is so good and the theology is so bad. You just, you just think, if you would just read your Bible once, you would have understood. So to pray kingdom prayers, we have to understand what's happening in the kingdom. Well, the answer to the question, how are we to pray for the peace of Jerusalem, is very simple. Tonight we find the answer in Isaiah 60, pray for the golden age of Jerusalem. Pray for the golden age of Jerusalem. And as I hope that you're taking more time to pray kingdom prayers, I want to just add to your repertoire tonight, add to your list of things that you can pray because as Jerusalem goes, so goes the kingdom. And according to Isaiah 60, the future of Jerusalem is bright. Quite literally, we'll see. Isaiah 60 answers the question, to whom does Jerusalem belong? Let me give you the short answer. To whom does Jerusalem belong? It belongs to Christ, it belongs to Israel, and it's shared with the world. That's to whom Jerusalem belongs. So Isaiah is going to describe what we might call the coming glorious era of Zion, the golden age of Jerusalem. Now, before we get into this, this, there's an important interpretive issue to understand here. And so we need to kind of dig our way in. In prophetic literature in the Old Testament, very often there's what we call a near fulfillment and a far fulfillment melded together kind of into a single prophecy. That the near fulfillment gives you confidence that the far fulfillment is going to come true. I'll give you one example from the same book, from Isaiah. Isaiah 7.14 Therefore, the Lord himself will give you a sign. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son and shall call his name Emmanuel. And the debate is, is that a prophecy that came true immediately or is that a prophecy that comes true in the person of Jesus Christ? Well, the answer is yes to both. In Isaiah's day, a virgin, which is a word that can either mean a virgin or a young woman, that's the genius of this, gave birth to a child according to this prophecy just a short time after the prophecy. But Matthew 1 verse 22 attributes the ultimate fulfillment of this prophecy to Jesus being born to an actual virgin. And so this is, this is the case very often. We see these prophecies of something that's going to happen sooner and something that's going to happen later and they're put together. The, the prophecy of the, the coming son of God in Isaiah 9. We see elements of his birth and then all of a sudden the government shall be upon his shoulders. That's millennial kingdom. And so this is a a frequent occurrence in Isaiah and we have this happening here again because in Isaiah 60, we seem to have a combining of the elements from the Jerusalem of the coming millennial kingdom of Christ when he returns to reign on earth for a thousand years and some elements from the new Jerusalem in the final state of God's eternal redemptive plan. And I don't think it matters that much which one will kind of pick it apart a little bit But in either case, we're meant to get excited, thrilled, and eager that something better is coming today. And I think it's safe to say, as I've read through Isaiah, and it's just been such a blessing to go verse by verse through this book, few things have excited Isaiah's literary genius, like the hope of a restored and glorious Jerusalem. And remember, he 
lived in Jerusalem. He was from Jerusalem. This chapter is a poem of absolute brilliance. And if I could put it this way, under the superintendence of the Holy Spirit, Isaiah is a virtuoso. And he gives a picture so vivid that we can, we can visualize it. And in typical Hebrew poetic style, he presents his information in a symmetrical pattern. It begins with several themes and it ends with the same themes in mirror image. And then the nitty gritty, the, the crux, the key point that he's trying to make is right in the middle of his poem. And so we'll kind of follow that pattern because that seems to be the pattern that, that Isaiah goes with here in his really genius literary style. And so what I want to do is just very simply highlight five hallmarks of the golden age of Jerusalem. And these are things you can pray for and ask the Lord to bring about. Five hallmarks of the golden age of Jerusalem. The first hallmark we would call the illumination of Jerusalem. The illumination of Jerusalem. Verse 1. Arise, shine, for your light has come, and the glory of the Lord has risen upon you. Now, among all the Old Testament prophets, Isaiah has pretty much cornered the market on the metaphor of light as representing Israel's coming Redeemer, the Lord Jesus Christ. Jesus himself confirms this. He claims to be the light of the world, and that's said of him frequently. And here, Isaiah is, is symbolically speaking to the city, telling Jerusalem, telling Israel to stand up as her king and her savior arrives. And just as we would stand as royalty enters our presence, Jerusalem is to get on her feet to welcome her true king. And I think about Isaiah, who was so familiar with Jerusalem, and he had seen countless sunrises come up over the eastern hills of that beautiful city, and he pictures the coming of Christ as a glorious sunrise. Why is this? Because verse 2, for behold, darkness shall cover the earth and thick darkness the peoples. When Christ returns, darkness will be covering the earth, thick darkness on the peoples. Antichrist will be wreaking havoc on the world. A great world war will be coming to one culminating battle. Revelation 16, beginning in verse 12, describes this. The sixth angel poured out his bowl on the great river Euphrates and its water was dried up to prepare the way for the kings from the east. And I saw coming out of the mouth of the dragon and out of the mouth of the beast and out of the mouth of the false prophet, three unclean spirits like frogs, for they are demonic spirits performing signs who go abroad to the kings of the whole world to assemble them for battle on the great day of God, the almighty. Behold, I am coming like a thief. Blessed is the one who stays awake keeping his garments on that he may not go about naked and be seen exposed. And they assembled them at the place that in Hebrew is called Armageddon. And so what happens immediately after the first half of verse two, for behold, darkness shall cover the earth, the thick darkness, of the peoples. What happens right at that moment? Well, you can insert right there, Zechariah 14, three and four that then the Lord will go out and fight against those nations as when he fights on the day of battle. On that day, his feet shall stand on the Mount of Olives that lies before Jerusalem on the east and the Mount of Olives shall be split in two from east to west by a very wide valley so that one half of the mount shall move northward and the other half southward. And the next verses describe the Lord Jesus rescuing Israel and saving her from destruction and he will win that battle. The rest of Zechariah 14 describes that, that very quick win. 
And then there will be a time of what we might call post-war cleanup and setup of the kingdom. Ezekiel 39 verse 12 says it'll take seven months for Israel to clean up the dead bodies from this battle. Seven months. And in fact, there will be so many weapons left that Israel won't have to use cut down trees for firewood for seven years. That there will be bonfires going for years and years. And then Matthew 25 tells us that Christ will gather all the nations to himself, all the survivors of the tribulation. He will judge them. The believers in Christ will enter the kingdom. The rebels will be executed and prepared for final judgment at the end of the age. And of course, we don't have time to go into all the details, but when Christ has returned, we in the church who have been raptured with him, resurrected uh, prior to that, we will have returned with him. And so now you'll have on the earth the the glorified saints and the saints not yet glorified, but for a time there will be just absolute total peace because everybody will be a worshiper of Christ. And now once the kingdom is set up under the rule of the light of Israel, the nations will begin to lovingly flock to Jerusalem. Ezekiel 39, beginning of verse 21 says, And I will set my glory among the nations, and all the nations shall see my judgment that I have executed, my hand that I have laid on them. The house of Israel shall know that I am the Lord their God from that day forward. Our Israel trip this summer, about, I don't know, 10 or 12 of you are going, but when the kingdom is set up, the Israel trip business is going to be booming. Everybody's going to want to go, and everybody's going to get to go. Look at the second half of verse two. But the Lord will arise upon you and his glory will be seen upon you and nations shall come to your light and kings to the brightness of your rising. Not only will the nations, that's us, be flocking to Jerusalem, the nations will be providing a service to the saved Jews of the world. And I'll get to that in just a moment. God promised in Jeremiah 16 verse 15 As the Lord lives who brought up the people of Israel out of the north country and out of all the countries where he had driven them, for I will bring them back to their own land that I gave to their fathers. Listen, a huge theme in the study of Israelology, we might call it, is the regathering of God's people. Now, generally speaking, most people did not take this seriously. That they they didn't say, oh, that's that's really going to happen. Mostly they said, that's impossible. It's never going to happen. Most people didn't take it seriously until May 14th, 1948. And that's when Israel was reconstituted as a sovereign, independent nation for the first time, essentially, since the days of Nehemiah. That's about 2,500 years. That's the comeback win of the ages to reconstitute a nation that is 2,500 years gone. Now, the Israel of today is not the Israel spoken of here in Isaiah 60. But 1948 certainly opened eyes that God can, in fact, regather his people. Currently, less than half the world's Jews live in Israel. Most of them don't acknowledge Christ, so they're still in spiritual darkness. This darkness of verse 2, spiritually speaking, is still there. So when Christ returns, when he has opened the eyes of his people, when he's opened the eyes of the Jews that have survived the great tribulation, what is the service to the now saved Jews that the world, that we Gentiles will provide. Verse four, 
Lift up your eyes all around and see. They all gather together. They come to you. Your sons shall come from afar and your daughters shall be carried on the hip. In some fashion, it will be our joy, it will be our passion to help our Jewish brothers and sisters get home. And of course, we will be welcomed as well. This is such a poignant picture. Your sons come from afar, your daughters be carried on the hip. It's the picture of a mother or even a, a teenage girl who, who takes a baby and just sticks a baby on the hip, that, that perfect carrying place for a child. And while sons and daughters speaks, generally speaking, of Jews, it is not out of the realm of possibility that there will be uh, orphaned Jewish children who, whose safe place on this earth will be Jerusalem and that we help them get home as well. That's not out of the realm of possibility. And God pictures Jerusalem like a, a mother who's looking out the window waiting for her babies to come home. Verse 5, Then you shall see and be radiant. Your heart shall thrill and exult. The, the heart of Jerusalem will exult. It's a word that means to become wide, to open yourself up. It's the idea of expansive joy, of open arms. And as God's people are gathered together in the greatest family reunion in history, now we begin to kind of blur the distinction between the millennial Jerusalem and the new Jerusalem. It doesn't really matter, but we do see a blurring here. Look at verses 19 and 20 with me. The sun shall be no more your light by day, nor for brightness shall the moon give you light, but the Lord will be your everlasting light and your God will be your glory. Your sun shall no more go down, nor your moon withdraw itself. For the Lord will be your everlasting light and your days of mourning shall be ended. Now, if you're familiar with the New Testament, you can hear the description of New Jerusalem in Revelation 21. And the city has no need of sun or moon to shine on it for the glory of God gives it light and its lamp is the lamb. By its light will the nations walk and the kings of the earth will bring their glory into it. But listen, the Lord won't only be bathing his people in the light of Christ, he'll be changing them to be like the light, changing them into his likeness. This is the fulfillment of the promise made to every believer by the Apostle Paul in Romans 8, 29 and 30, that those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to become conformed to the image of his son. Right now, we enjoy what we like to call theologically imputed righteousness, that the one who believes on the Lord Jesus Christ is credited with the righteousness of Christ, that we borrow his righteousness, as it were. But someday, we will be actualized. We will be conformed to the likeness of Christ. Verses 21 and 22, your people shall all be righteous. They shall possess the land forever, the branch of my planting, the work of my hands, that I might be glorified. The least one shall become a clan and the smallest one a mighty nation. I am Yahweh. I am the Lord. In its time, I will hasten it. This is a description of a world in which every single person is perfect and righteous and holy in word, in thought, and in deed. The sermon that I had to preach this morning concerning sexual immorality will never have to be preached. That can be laid aside. No one will ever think a negative thought about you again. No one will ever say a negative word about you again. Expressions of love will be real, will be genuine. The fruit of the spirit of love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control will be evident in every person's life 24 hours a day, seven days a week. 
What a world. And why is this? Because the illumination of Jerusalem, the light of the world, decreed it. And his decree was that all believers will be made into his image. So the first hallmark of the golden age of Jerusalem, the illumination of Jerusalem. The illumination. Second hallmark we might call the transformation of Jerusalem. The transformation of Jerusalem. Not only will the peoples of the earth be flocking to Jerusalem, but the wealth of the earth will be as well. The wealth will be coming. Verse 5, then you shall see, sorry, we're going back to verse 5. Then you shall see and be radiant. Your heart shall thrill and exult because the abundance of the sea shall be turned to you. The wealth of the nations shall come to you. When it says the abundance of the sea, this is the idea of, of seaports just having ship after ship after ship just filled with glorious delights and riches coming and landing and bringing its wealth to the nation. Verse 6, a multitude of camels shall cover you. The young camels of Midian and Ephah, all those from Sheba shall come. They shall bring gold and frankincense and shall bring good news, the praises of the Lord. All the flocks of Kedar shall be gathered to you. The rams of Nebaioth shall minister to you. They shall come up with acceptance on my altar and I will beautify my beautiful house. We have Midian, the former enemy of Israel, coming to be worshipers of Christ. And Isaiah does this genius literary device here. Obviously, he's not representing every nation on earth, but he does represent them geographically. He creates a picture of a worldwide pilgrimage to Jerusalem, Midian in the far south, Ephah to the east of the Persian Gulf, Sheba in the deep south, Kedar and Nebaioth in the northern areas of the Arabian, Arabian desert. In other words, when you said those names to an 8th century BC reader of Isaiah, they would say, oh, they're coming from all over the world, all over the known world. And we see the familiar picture here of bringing gold and frankincense Only this time, it's not just a few wise men coming to worship baby Jesus. It's all of the world coming to worship King Yeshua, King Jesus. It's it's wise men times everybody. And not only are they bringing Jews, not only are they bringing their offerings of love to Jerusalem, they're also bringing good news, the praises of the Lord. There will be no more spiritually darkened places on earth. No more Islam. No more Buddhism. No more Roman Catholicism. No more false religion of any kind. And the reports that will be coming in from all around the world are that the people of God are living holy lives under under God. That the gospel has literally permeated the earth and that the worship of God in spirit and in truth is happening in every nation, every city, every town, every neighborhood, every house, and in every heart. In other words, we're in Jerusalem. You can picture this and you, and you meet somebody. Hey, where are you from? Well, I'm from the northern part of Russia. Well, what's the spiritual climate there like? Oh, we love the gospel. We love Christ. Just last week, we had an all-day-long hymn sing and we, we heard the word of God proclaimed. And I meet somebody else. Where are you from? From Mozambique. What's the spiritual climate there like? Oh, we love the Lord Jesus. Everybody is saved and we, we worship together. We gather together. We live together. We help one another. And that will be the report over and over again from all over the world. No more spiritual darkness. Amazing, amazing. The earth will be the church of Jesus Christ and the church of Jesus Christ will inhabit the earth. Jerusalem will be transformed. The world will be transformed. 
And what kind of place will Jerusalem be as the model city of earth? Well, there will be a massive increase in quality and in prosperity. Skip over with me to verse 17. Instead of bronze, I will bring gold. And instead of iron, I will bring silver. Instead of wood, bronze. Instead of stones, iron. Increase in quality, increase in prosperity. Jerusalem will be ruled by goodness instead of taskmasters, instead of slave masters. Second half of verse 17, I will make your overseers peace and your taskmasters righteousness. Crime will be reduced to zero. Verse 18, violence shall no more be heard in your land. Devastation or destruction within your borders. Safety and worship will saturate everything. You shall call your walls salvation and your gates praise. I mean, can you imagine what would happen today if you're standing in line at a typical liberal Starbucks and you just yell out and you say, Jesus is Lord. What would happen? Security, we have a problem over there in the line. We would like for you to come drag that person. What if you did that in this kingdom, in Jerusalem, if Jerusalem had Starbucks? I don't think Jerusalem will have Starbucks. But if you did that then, everybody would say, amen. And they would love to talk about the Lord. When did you get saved? How did you come to faith? What a glorious time. Safety and worship. You shall call your walls salvation and your gates praise. You know what, that, you know what that's the idea? That's a, a city metaphor. That if you're driving down the street and you go and there's a street sign. Oh, look, that street sign. That's uh, Zechariah Street. And look over there. There's Matthew Avenue. Look over there. There's Yeshua Way. And everything is just named after those things that remind us of the Lord. Zechariah even says that all the pots and pans in the land will say holy to the Lord to them. Everything holy. Why do you think we like to go on church retreats? Why do we like the women's retreat? Why do we like the men's retreat? I think one reason is that it gets, gives us just a little taste of that sort of society. It gives us a day or two where everybody there loves Christ. Everybody there is there for the same purpose and we enjoy the undistracted fellowship of believers and the untainted time together with no worries, no concerns for the world. We want just a little taste of that. The transformation of Jerusalem will be the hallmark of a transformed world inhabited by a transformed people. There's a third hallmark of the golden age of Jerusalem, the attraction of Jerusalem. The attraction of Jerusalem. We go back to verses eight and nine. Who are these that fly like a cloud and like doves to their windows? For the coastland shall hope for me, the ships of Tarshish first, to bring your children from afar, their silver and gold with them. For the name of the Lord your God and for the Holy One of Israel, for he has made you beautiful. Verse 8 has this picture of a dove. This is speaking of something like a homing pigeon that knows where her home is. God promised Israel in Hosea 11, verse 11, they shall come trembling like birds from Egypt and like doves from the land of Assyria and I will return them to their homes, declares the Lord. They know where to go. They know where home is. And it says that the coastlands will be eager for Jerusalem. That can be translated islands. And sometimes it speaks specifically of the islands of the Mediterranean. But generally, it's more often just a, a, a broad term to mean any faraway place. From all the faraway places, they'll be eager to come home. 
And again, we see the Gentiles bringing Israel home, bringing their children and bringing wealth with them to give to the Holy One of Israel, to give to the amazingly attractive Jerusalem. And this is just a, this is just a fact of human nature, that quality attracts quality. There are very few, for example, uh, athletes that, that look and say, I would like to play for the worst team that there is. They don't say that. They say, I want to play for the best team. And so quality attracts quality. As a matter of fact, the relationship that Israel has with the nations of the world is going to be completely transformed. What's the relationship that Israel has with the world today? It's terrible. Israel is, is seen as a second-class citizen on the stage of the world. Our president recently announced that he's moving the U.S. embassy to Israel to Jerusalem. Now, that may have just passed by you in the, in the news and thought it wasn't that big of a deal, but what that's doing is he's formally recognizing Jerusalem as the capital of Israel. And this is scheduled to happen in May to coincide with the 70th anniversary of the reformation of Israel as a sovereign nation. But this is super controversial. Why? Because both the Palestinians and the Israelis claim Jerusalem as their capital. And no other nation has an embassy in Jerusalem. You realize that? There's 86 embassies in Tel Aviv, but no one will go to Jerusalem except the United States. And I don't generally like to make political statements from the pulpit. I don't think that's always appropriate. But that was gutsy. And that was along the lines of what the Bible would have us to view uh, Jerusalem as, a, as, a, as the center of the spiritual world. As a matter of fact, our president quoted... Prime Minister David Ben-Gurion, who said almost 70 years ago that Jerusalem is, quote, the eternal capital of Israel. Our president quoted him. That was gutsy and that was right. Now, we don't read any prophetic significance into this since everything described here in Isaiah 60 happens after the rapture and the return of Christ. But it does go to show that the relationship of Israel to the world is totally broken now. It's broken down. I mean, why is it that Israel has to, has to have such a massive defensive structure? Because they're one little plot of land about the size of New Jersey surrounded by people who want to blow them off the planet. That's their relationship with the world right now. Oh, but we get a whole different picture in Isaiah. Look at verse 15. Whereas you have been forsaken and hated. We can all see that in the newspaper. Whereas you have been forsaken and hated with no one passing through, I will make you majestic forever, a joy from age to age. Now, instead of no one wanting to recognize Jerusalem, everyone will want to be there. And Isaiah presents this poignant and rich kind of maternal picture of how Israel will receive the very best from all the world, the very best we have to offer, that far from being the outsider in the world, Jerusalem will be the center of of the world. Verse 16, you shall suck the milk of nations. You shall nurse at the breast of kings. You shall know that I, the Lord, am your savior and your redeemer, the mighty one of Jacob. Listen, you remember in when Israel was in Egypt and God told them about the day before you go, go knock on all the doors of the, the Egyptians and say, give me all your best stuff. And under God's uh, spirit and under God's providence, the Egyptians were kind of blindly saying, let's see, here's all my family heirlooms, here's all my money. Here, yes, take it, please. And that must have been weird for those who have been slaves for so long to be walking with a backpack filled with gold going, how, how did that happen? The whole world will be doing this now. 
that every nation on earth will say, what is the best we have? We've got to bring it to Jerusalem. We've got to bring it to this glorious city. Listen, the promise of God to bring Israel into a land flowing with milk and honey. He gives that promise all the way back in Exodus 3. It's not ultimately just talking about the land's inherent ability to give prosperity. It's a land flowing with milk and honey because all the nations of the world have brought the milk and honey to her, given the very best of all that they have. And this will prove that the Lord Jesus Christ is the Savior of Israel. What an attraction. Hallmarks of the golden age of Jerusalem, the illumination of Jerusalem, the transformation, the attraction of Jerusalem. Here's another hallmark, the submission to Jerusalem. Submission to Jerusalem. The nations won't just bring their wealth. They'll bring their allegiance. They'll bring their loyalty. Now, I would say this as lovingly as I can, that those who want to meld the people of God into a group that's devoid of all distinctions, meaning those who want to combine the, the Gentile church as simply representing all of Israel or who want to say that Israel is the church, the church is Israel, who want to go back and forth. One of the protests that they make is that it seems to create two separate peoples of God. That Israel, they're the haves and us Gentiles, us poor slobs, we're the have-nots. And I understand that, and that's a legitimate concern, but that's not the picture presented in Isaiah 60 at all. Instead, we have a picture of God's chosen people of Israel, ethnic Jews, saved by the blood of Jesus Christ, who are loved and cherished and cared for by God's chosen people of the Gentile nations, who are saved by the blood of Christ, who find our joy and our delight in being grafted into God's blessed people, and our love and our joy will be to serve them. Look at verse 10. Foreigners shall build up your walls and their kings shall minister to you. For in my wrath I struck you, but in my favor I've had mercy on you. Verse 10 is a picture of Gentile nations helping rebuild the infrastructure of a post-tribulation Jerusalem. And when this happens, there will be, as it were, a, a ceaseless stream of provision and help coming from the nations such that verse 11 says, your gates shall be open continually. Day and night they shall not be shut that people may bring to you the wealth of the nations with their kings led in procession. This won't just be a world leader saying, yeah, let's write them a check. This will be the king of a nation walking ahead of a procession that has truckload after truckload or wagon load after wagon load. Who knows whether we'll have that technology available at that moment of provision and wealth to help with the rebuilding of the nation. Can't help but think of King Solomon. King Solomon, the son of David, he was about to set about building the temple of God and then a palace for Davidic kings. And Hiram, the king of Lebanon, wrote Solomon a letter. And he told him in 2 Chronicles 2, because the Lord loves his people, he has made you king over them. Listen to this. Blessed be the Lord God of Israel who made heaven and earth, who has given King David a wise son, who has discretion and understanding, who will build a temple for the Lord and a royal palace for himself. And King Hiram sent his greatest craftsmen to Solomon. He sent Solomon timber uh, by way of the sea, several different types of wood. He also provided gold for the temple. First Kings 9.11 says, as much as he desired. Hiram also manufactured the stuff that was in the house of the Lord, the paraphernalia, the, the pots, the shovels, the basins, all the vessels of different kinds. 
Now, this is somewhat of a rough illustration because King Solomon wrote a check for those things. He, he paid for them. But the point is that a foreign king, far from saying, how can we control and maintain and dominate and, and conquer Jerusalem, a foreign king said, blessed be the Lord God of Israel who made heaven and earth. It's a foreign king recognizing that Yahweh is the one true and holy God. And therefore, he sends his wealth to Jerusalem. As a matter of fact, Isaiah pulls from that very national memory of Israel to make a promise about the future submission of nations to Israel. Verse 13, the glory of Lebanon shall come to you, the cypress, the plain, and the pine, to beautify the place of my sanctuary. The plain is not how they're bringing the the trees. That is a type of tree. And I will make the place of my feet glorious. The sons of those who afflicted you shall come bending low to you. And all who despised you shall bow down at your feet. They shall call you the city of the Lord, the Zion of the Holy One of Israel. So what will our relationship to Jerusalem, the the chosen ethnic people of God, what will that relationship be? It will be one of love and delight and joy in Christ where we love and relish the redemptive plan of God his plan for his people, his plan for his glorious city, and we will submit to that. Jerusalem will be the capital of the world. It will be the center of all spiritual activity. It will be where Christ dwells, and if you want to see Jesus, you will go there. The hallmarks of the golden age of Jerusalem, the illumination, the transformation, the attraction, the submission to Jerusalem. Well, finally, and this is the core issue, this is the center, this is the crux, this is the nitty-gritty the obligation to Jerusalem. The obligation to Jerusalem. Do you know that the United Nations declared Jerusalem, and they used a Latin phrase, I don't remember, it's a legal term, but they had to declare Jerusalem a unique city on on all the earth, that it's essentially a, a, a sovereign state all by itself with four different peoples who want to blow each other off the planet, all living together. It's the weirdest, strangest arrangement that there is. Right now, Jerusalem is somewhat of a joke to the world. It's, it's the place that people shake their head and say, why can't they get things figured out? Well, it's going to be just the opposite. Now, we will come pandering to Jerusalem, as it were. In the midst of the descriptions of the golden age of Jerusalem, there comes an evangelistic statement. That to love Jerusalem is indicative of loving Christ. That to cherish Jerusalem is a sign of those who love God. That to submit to Jerusalem is the sign of having submitted to Christ. And on the flip side, that if you continue to hate Jerusalem, then you are by default hating God and hating his earthly king. That these go hand in hand. And here's the center, here's the crux. Verse 12. For the nation and kingdom that will not serve you shall perish. Those nations shall be utterly laid waste. Now, in the millennial kingdom, at the very beginning, every nation will love Christ as evidenced by their love for his city. But the earth will still have mortal sinners who are having children who are unsaved sinners. And so that in a world that, yes, is ruled by Christ in person, it will still have rebels in it left over from the tribulation. And so God has to issue a warning Zechariah 14, beginning in verse 16, says, Then everyone who survives of all the nations that have come up against Jerusalem shall go up year after year to worship the king, the Lord of hosts, and to keep the Feast of Booths. What is the Feast of Booths? It was an Old Testament feast that was primarily to look forward to the coming of Messiah, 
Now the Feast of Booths is celebrated in a new way. It's the celebration to say he's here. It is to worship Christ. And if any of the families of the earth do not go up to Jerusalem to worship the king, the Lord of hosts, there will be no rain on them. And if the family of Egypt does not go up and present themselves, then on them there shall be no rain. There shall be the plague with which the Lord afflicts the nations that do not go up to keep the Feast of Booths. This shall be the punishment to Egypt and the punishment to all the nations that do not go up to keep the Feast of Booths. And so in the Millennial Kingdom, there will be a clear division. If you don't worship Christ, we will not tolerate this. But in the final state, after God has judged all of the unsaved dead of all the ages, when he has eradicated sin literally from the universe, when we have a new heavens and a new earth, and on that new earth we have a new Jerusalem, every nation will love Christ. And what will be the evidence of their love for Christ? It will be that they love Jerusalem. Revelation 21, beginning in verse 24, by its light, new Jerusalem, Will the nations walk and the kings of the earth will bring their glory, meaning their wealth, into it. And its gates will never be shut by day. That sounds like what we read in verse 11. Your gates shall be open continually. Its gates will never be shut by day. There will be no night there. They will bring into it the glory and the honor of the nations. But nothing unclean will ever enter it, nor anyone who does what is detestable or false, but only those who are written in the Lamb's book of life. And so ultimately, Jerusalem becomes the litmus test for the gospel, that to love Christ is to love his kingdom program. In fact, Ezekiel 38.12 humorously calls Jerusalem the center of the earth. Translators of our English standard version are reluctant to use the literal Hebrew word. It is the belly button of the earth. In the golden age of Jerusalem, God will be glorified on the earth. Now, as we're talking about praying kingdom prayers, praying for the golden age of Jerusalem, the question that I, as your shepherd, am obligated to answer is, so what? So what? What does this have to do with me? Well, that's the wrong question. Let me move beyond me. Let's ask a better question. The better question is, what does this have to do with God's glory? And the answer is everything. Everything. This was his plan. This is, re- this is his redemptive plan. This is his overarching scheme for humanity. And so your prayer life ought to begin and it ought to end with concern for God's glory. Jesus began the model prayer to his disciples with concern for God's glory. Our Father who is in heaven, holy is your name. He began his high priestly prayer in John 17. The first five verses are all about the glory of God. And so in the spirit of wanting God to be glorified, obey the command of Psalm 122, verse 6, to pray for the peace of Jerusalem. Pray for the coming salvation of Israel. Pray for the believers who are in Jerusalem right now. Pray for the salvation of many more in Jerusalem right now. Pray for the many Muslims in Jerusalem to come to faith in Christ. And if I could put it this way, pray for your heart to often turn eastward in your thoughts and look to the location that Jesus will return to this earth. It is the center, it is the spiritual belly button, as it were, of God's kingdom program. 
And so we would encourage you, I would encourage you to pray as Jesus commanded, your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Our Father, we come to you thanking you so much for the clarity of your kingdom program. You have not led us astray in any way. You have not left us to guess at anything. You have made this so abundantly clear. Just in Isaiah alone, you, you repeat yourself so many times it almost becomes hard to preach because you say the same thing over and over again to make sure that we get it. And so, Lord, we would, as believers in Jesus Christ all the way over here in the state of California, we would want to obey the command of Psalm 122, verse 6, and to pray for the peace of Jerusalem. Lord, we would pray even now for those brave believers who are meeting in, in secret in Jerusalem. We pray for those who are literally living next door to Muslims and to uh, those who believe in false forms of Christianity. We pray for their witness to go forth. We pray for their safety. We pray for their, their ministry. And Lord, we would join the Apostle John in our prayer for you to come soon, Lord Jesus. We would join with the prayers of the saints who are eager for the soon coming of the Savior. Lord, I pray that as we pray more kingdom-oriented prayers, as we think about our brothers and sisters yet to be born again, as we think about our, our precious Jewish brothers and sisters yet to be born again, that you would pull us out of the doldrums of our own difficulties and that you would give us moments of joy and peace where we look ahead and we, as it were, with the eyes of the Bible, can see the golden age of Jerusalem, one in which we will get to serve, in which we will get to partake, in which we will get to enjoy the glory of all that you have for your people in the coming age. And then as we walk through each day, day by day, as we're looking more ahead, as we keep our minds and our eyes focused on things that are above, on your overall redemptive plan, might you give us the grace and the peace to walk through each day with with contentment, with joy, and with faith, understanding that the best is yet to be. We pray these things for Christ's sake and for his glory. Amen.